0: And welcome to yet another episode of The Dice Are Screaming. Oh, very melodic. Yes, I like that one. <laughs> yeah. All right, now you just made it weird. Now the yeah. dice are Catholic. Inexplicably. <laughs> uh,
1: there's like a little incense burner. Oh, yeah. Mm.
0: Oh. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so welcome. I'm Randy. I'm Mike. And together we form the Diceman. By our powers combined, we shall bring you podcasts and topics. <laughs> it's Topic Tuesday, speaking of. Hope you had a great weekend. It's the Labor Day is over, so. Yeah. Uh, hope you got some gaming time for those who
1: wished to make use of it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I didn't really have barbecue this year. We just uh, had a little game. We had, uh, Abby came over and made some cauliflower buffalo wings, so. Have to be believed. To the be druid fun. would
1: be pr- the druids would be
0: proud. No actual wings were clipped from buffaloes.
1: Uh, well, the noble buffalo does not deserve to have its wings That's chopped exactly off at random like that. Ah, uh. <laughs> uh, Thus, the flying buffalo games. Uh, yep, flying know, buffalo games. That's yep. why they're so rare. Yeah, you know, it's like unicorns now. Finding a flying buffalo uh, because so many people have egregiously abused the noble buffalo by severing its wings.
0: Uh-oh. <laughs> Yeah, so what I think what we're gonna do for uh, coming up here, out of a uh, little uh, homage to Rick Loomis who's passed away, is where me and Mike are actually going to do a playthrough of Buffalo Castle oh, we're using tunnels and trolls. Real yeah. simple system. We're gonna just do it as a live cast, and uh, we're gonna go through the upper level, I think, and just see if we can get through uh, to the end. Yeah,
1: with our game face on. Yeah, we're gonna aggro this. So, uh, But that's not, you know, right this session now, but uh, it, look forward to it. It should be
0: interesting. Yeah, that's not this one. Um, some other news uh, from around the gaming world. Uh, things uh, seem to be going pretty well for Dungeons and & Dragons and uh, uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition. So, you know, uh, starting to get into a lot of releases as well as uh, Chaosium with Call of Cthulhu. Man, uh, the yeah, Berlin sourcebook. I have... Uh, heard reviews, but I haven't got a copy yet, but um, I'll probably pick up a PDF, and uh, maybe we'll talk about some Call of Cthulhu supplements through the years, because there are a lot that uh, bears some mention.
1: Yes, there are some that, I mean, we, we've done module reviews before, but uh, typically we've done a lot of the D&D and Pathfinder modules. Now, yeah, There is no reason, uh, well, and we did uh, Gamma World yes. uh, with an examination of the Legion of Gold, mm-hmm. but Paula Cthulhu totally deserves a module examination because they have terrific, well-written material out there that's well worth a look at.
0: And especially considering the Weimar Republic of the 1920s makes for a wild and woolly time.
1: Oh, boy.
0: I definitely can say that it's probably not going to be family-friendly. All if right. I know anything about Berlin. Well,
1: that if I know anything about Cthulhu.
0: <laughs> this isn't a zany romp. Yeah, okay? this isn't a zany romp through the wild and wacky ways of Call of Cthulhu. No, I mean, just, it should be, a, they don't hold back at Chaosium. They don't shy away from the controversy. So, so
1: the Berlin one, uh, can I be like an early German film producer? Oh, yeah, that would so, be a great one. You know, unfortunately, I'm afflicted with heroin addiction. Well, yeah. And uh, you know various other ailments that preclude extreme action. I'll need you to assist me to the door.
0: How did we know he was uh, had a problem with heroin? He's a film producer in Berlin in the twenties. Yeah, that that would be all you needed to know. Yeah, because I mean, you. I think that's what you had to do. <laughs> it's like, are you addicted to heroin and making film in Berlin? No. Oh well, I we can't we have no use for you. Get out of here, <laughs> uh, eccentric German filmmaker. <laughs> Is there another kind? Otto von Zweidach. Yeah. <laughs> but all right, yeah, that's some stuff to cover up. So yeah, uh, kudos for Wizards and Paizo and uh, Call of Cthulhu uh, people, the Chaosium folks, just keeping things going. And man, just the volume that they're uh, moving material—that's encouraging from a perspective of where we are at now versus even 10 years ago.
1: Yeah, there was a a darker age where it seemed as though gaming was, uh, you know, losing a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm I'm not saying that things had not been fairly decent before that. Yeah. But nobody foresaw this, you know, incredible era uh, right on the horizon. I really did not think it would go off like this. Completely off the rails, incredible popularity, terrific sales. Sales numbers so robust that uh, I, for the first time, uh, Wizards of the Coast is uh, seeing the numbers from Magic ever so slightly eclipsed by the numbers from D&D. And yeah, this does just not gotta... mean that Magic is doing poorly. What this means is that, for once, role-playing games is on an equal footing as a financial plus in the ledger. At, in, I mean, a high-end plus.
0: Well, let's put this in a little perspective before we jump in tonight. Sure. In the 80s, you know, there was a, a toy line of Dungeons & Dragons. There was even beach towels, a wood-burning kit, color forms. There was a variety of...
1: Yeah, they had some cute little stuff.
0: And that's coming back. I mean, Target has a whole selection now of d d toys... I mean mostly they're plushies and like the owl Bear dice and mind player dice bag oh. and the little dragon shoes and, and the, of course uh, the r- pop art
1: people that uh, do those little uh,
0: Yeah. Little, they yeah, have- they're actually going to come out with collectible figures for our uh, you know uh, in blind bags like for some of the other stuff they do for Not my to little Mention pony
1: gaming related merchandise yep. for video games which have a fantasy theme so that's been
0: huge. Huh. Yeah, you would expect that out of The Witcher or Borderlands in you know, the big releases or uh, Assassin's Creed.
1: Yeah, and so the, you know, but these now you know it's back.
0: coming to Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, you're seeing just not clothing lines and things like that, like Death Saves, which is high end premium stuff. But you're seeing just like T shirts being featured in Target and Walmart that you wouldn't see before. I just passed uh at Walmart the other week. I just passed a small gaming shirt collection of Die Twenties. <laughs>
1: See, and here's the thing, is that uh, 30 years ago, you really wouldn't have found that anywhere but in an actual comic book shop right. that specialized in selling games, too. Now, you know, I mean, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And per usual, this is this is a recurring theme for me. I was a little, I was, I had mixed feelings about the arrival of the era of Hot Topic, too. Because I'm a le- crusty old leftover of the era where, there were no outlets where you went to buy anything to be a punk. Mm-hmm. Uh, you went to the army Navy surplus store. You got a bunch of black markers, uh, band logos from actual shows, and you proceeded to stitch and color safety pin. and pin, uh, and, you know, go down to the craft store, you know, you go to the Ben Franklin and buy a yep. bin full of safety pins. Uh, and this was how you made your gear. You, you did it yourself. Uh, and, well, I was marginally pleased that the popularity had meant that, like, this is a thing shared by a lot of people and there's a lot of mutual love there. That's great. But the kind of commercialization of it did put me off a little. And I, I still feel that way about this, too. Just, you know, I'm, I'm glad that it's reached a level of social popularity where people are enjoying the same hobby and they see eye to eye on this and they don't look askance at you. Uh, it's no longer a weird thing to be a gamer. But it it has opened a lot of you know commercial doors that I'm, I'm happy that people are out there doing stuff they love and making money and and showing it off with pride. Uh, but it's a little less personalized than it used to be. Well,
0: sure, I can make I can understand where you come from, um, but I can also say that it, it's nice to see that well gamers are being a marketable commodity in today's uh, commercial marketplace and stores and things like that. It doesn't hurt anybody in the long run. And just like those beach towels and AD&D uh, products, the Advanced Dungeons Dragons beach towel. <laughs> i seen one at Gen Con being auctioned off, and I was like, really? I never even knew that was a thing. But apparently it was. A washcloth towel set. Wow.
1: Uh, how
0: much did that go for? I don't recall, to be honest. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I just was like, that's crazy. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you don't see that every day. A lot of classic stuff from that era. They they did have a lot of weird little side items that people have forgotten. Uh, yeah,
0: I've been uh <laughs> hunting down a wood burning set. I want to get uh to do that for to embellish uh, dice uh boxes and uh dice towers. Yeah, going
1: back to like one of our earliest episodes, uh Dungeons and Dragons, uh you know, scratch and sniff stickers.
0: <laughs> Ew, Orc Midden Heap. Yeah, oh. skip that one, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right well so we had some call-ins from froth the sign of platypus oh, deigned we? to drop in from the ethereal plane and give us his bout of wisdom about our arneson versus gygax uh topic from last friday or rant oh I'm right sure. on right rant yeah so we're gonna turn it over to froth so take it away froth gentlemen it's
1: froth listening to your latest about gygax and arneson first wanted to thank y'all for the shout out. It's much appreciated. Uh, thank you. And I was just talking about the same topic, you know, based on this article and, uh, the documentary that's come out recently. And just like y'all, I figured this is kind of common knowledge sort of stuff. But, uh, then I read through a lot of the comments on that Kotaku article. And apparently, uh, apparently it wasn't, you know, it's kind of news to a lot of people. And, uh, I th- definitely think it's dangerous. First of all, Arneson definitely shouldn't be forgotten or, you know, not given credit, but I think it's dangerous to let that pendulum swing too far. Uh, the other way, you know, they
0: were both uh, needed for anything to have happened, but anyway, great show. See y'all later. All right. Thanks for the call in broth and uh thought eater. Great blog and great uh, podcast that you have. If you're not listening to Prothoth, as we like to say about our other friends at, uh, Gothridge Manor, and Old Van Grognard and some of the others, if you're not listening to their podcast, like Follow Me and Die, well, you should. Oh, so, yeah.
1: Blind Rat as well.
0: Yeah, Blind uh, Rat, and, uh, congratulations, Wheeler, well, on your, uh, yeah. getting on the nomination list. Woo-hoo! Uh, but anyway, yeah, back to Pros. Uh, hey, Prothoth, I believe what you say 100% there, that, uh, you know, Gygax, uh, gets a lot of the credit and maybe people have forgotten about that and it's good to bring it around uh, because as we get older uh, the generations as they pass on the torch to one another sometimes something gets lost in that passing of the flames so
1: yeah I I may have underestimated how many people uh, who are avid gamers I, I may have just foolishly assumed that if a person is an avid gamer that some of this would have occurred to them you know that they would have you know, nosed around and picked this up. Uh, it's kind of an unfair expectation on my part because we've each got 35 years under the belt at uh, learning about the game, the hobby itself, the publications, uh, and all of the people involved in bringing this stuff uh, to, to market. So there's a lot of esoteric bits of knowledge in there that, frankly, a lot of new players it's understandable that they wouldn't have it. So I should not let that sound like a condemnation of them. Uh, Now, the real shame goes to the people who do know this stuff and then attempt to mischaracterize it or frame it in such a way that it's sensationalistic and clickbaity, and, you know, that was not a fair treatment. Uh, And since I'm a big fan of both of the creatives involved, uh, you know, I've never really taken a stance where, you know, one of them is the sainted elect uh, above reproach and the other is the devil. You know, no, no, no. That is a ludicrous approach uh, that is largely based on probably exploiting everybody else's ignorance of the subject. But if they just don't have the experience and they don't know the, the names and they don't know the histories, you can tell them anything you want. And make yeah. a good buck doing it, too.
0: And we're getting... We, you are right. We're getting into some dangerous territory here when we start mentioning the uh, widow of Gygax and the rift between him and his, her and his sons and some of the other tales that come out, which I personally feel is nobody's doggone business. So that I don't want to know that Yeah, stuff.
1: that's his interior family dramas. Uh, you know, like, I'm I'm not really interested in I know that there's a uh,
0: little uh, dust-up over the estate and things like that, but uh, that's holding up some of the legacy and pro- uh, projects and other things that Gygax, uh, people wanted to do to honor him. But- yeah, and that's,
1: that's let's face it, uh, that is not especially unique, okay? It's not unusual. There are an awful lot of people who, in the aftermath of a, a loss, uh, you know, with a, even people who aren't dealing with a significant-sized estate, You wind up with people grieving in radically different ways and not getting along very well with each other. And things get said and people become hysterical and they say and do things that may not be rooted in fact or may not be rooted in good sense. And they embarrass themselves and everybody around them. I've seen it happen and it's never pretty. And so I don't really take as gospel things that are coming out of a crisis moment like that in a family. I... Suspend all judgment, back away, and like, you know, the dust will settle someday and people will have a better idea of what's going on. But it really is not my place to jump on board and try to sensationalize or profit from that kind of thing. It's actually shameful to do so.
0: Yeah, my way of treating uh, both creators with respect is playing a game that I enjoy. Play it well. All right. I think that's the only thing, the only legacy we need to concern ourselves with. But all right. So thanks again, Prozoff, and uh, good luck with you, man. Just keep going on with what you're doing. I love everything you do on your blogs and on your uh, podcast. So hey, man, take it easy, and uh, the best to you and your family. Anyway, peace. We're going to uh, break off with paying the bills, do some advertisements, and we're going to be right back. And we're going to topic. topic. We're going to topic you up, so you better be ready. All right. So see you in a minute. And we're back, much to your chagrin. Oh, uh, yes. You're stuck with us. Yep. So. You do it to us. So. And we are going to topic you, you up. up. <laughs> That's right. So, without further ado, we're going to do Appendix N3. No. Oh, uh, N.75? <laughs> yeah, something. It's Appendix N. We're talking about fantasy books. <laughs> we're we're going to do it until you've got appendicitis. <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh. oh Alright, so, <clears throat> without further ado, uh, we're going to launch right into just uh, fantasy books. And, of course, we've covered a lot of the classics. Oh. So we want to talk about some, a little bit more obscure that were around at that era, as well as a couple new ones. So, uh, Mike, you had a couple books you just wanted to bring up right out of the gate. Oh, well, I mean, uh, probably a nice
1: opener would be uh, my fondness for Lawrence Watt Evans. Uh, this, the, he's more of an outlier among... Uh, fantasy authors, not as well known, uh, moderately prolific. Okay. It's not like the guy only wrote two or three books, uh, but (laughs) several of them were, oh, how do I put it? Uh, inspirational to me personally for gaming purposes. Okay. I drew a lot of material from them, uh, including a book called the misenchanted sword, Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and another one called The Spell of the Black Dagger. Uh, and in these, he had a particular setting in which a number of these stories took place. And the magic system involved within was widely varied uh, and complicated. It, it Basically, he included all of the various types of magic that you're familiar with throughout history, and he... He had them inside the novels as codified things where uh, they were all members of their own particular guilds and did not share well with others and uh, stuck to their own and uh, would acquire work uh, through their guild, you know, doing spells or whatsoever they would do for people. Uh, So you had your alchemists doing their alchemy, Uh your witches doing their witchcraft, uh,
0: warlocks. Doing warlocky.
1: Thurgists uh, working with the divine. Theurgy. Yeah, okay. Thurgists. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, and done. conjurers, uh, what have you. So, all of the very necromancy, everything. Uh, they each had their place and fiercely protected the secrets of their practice uh, and competed in the marketplace. Mm. Uh, and certain groups could do, could accomplish certain tasks while others could accomplish things that nobody else could. They each had their strengths and deficits. Uh, and so it created this incredibly complicated tapestry of, of magic that did not, I think, get as covered as well as it could have, but it implied a lot in each novel that there was all of this, uh, oh, competition going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to give like a very, very short explanation... Oh
0: yeah, plenty of time soon.
1: Uh Lauren Evans' books, the two that I referenced, both deal with the consequences of a spell gone wrong, which is a recurring theme in any of his novels. Uh, magic being fickle in the sense that it requires absolute caution and you know perfect performance to get it right. But a a simple mistake can have wildly unpredictable results. One wrong ingredient can make the difference between uh, I've cured your wart uh, to the wart has grown to the size of a tomato and will soon drain your body of life and then get up and walk off on its own. (laughs) Uh, You know, just horrible things are commonplace when magic goes awry in his stories. Uh, And as a result of that, I have used... The notion of magical items that have a quirk, uh, which was already present in D&D, uh, but a disadvantageous uh, oddity, like something in the spell went wrong. It was supposed to be an ordinary wand of magic missiles, but uh, this one also turns your fingertips blue uh, for about a week after you use it. So, I mean, if it's... Serious,
0: Why? Because blue fingers. Yeah, we
1: don't even know. Uh, And the worst part is the blue handprint sticks on everything that you touch for that week. So, yeah, just the idea of using these oddball curio uh, disadvantages to magic uh, appealed to me enormously. So, honestly, I I think aside from being an enjoyable read, despite not being incredibly um, well-known, I believe that other people could take good inspiration for fantasy campaigns from them, uh, in in the case of the misenchanted sword, it involves a guy who is on the run from a pack of uh, demons conjured by uh, the enemies of his nation. Mm-hmm. He's an outlying scout, and he's making a run through the swamps to try to shortcut his way back to friendly lines before these you know half demon men catch up with him. Uh, and he stumbles upon the hut of a wizard living out in the middle of nowhere, and it turns out. The wizard is actually fairly powerful and is friendly to his nation, having literally retired from the armed services. He was a fighting wizard back in the day. Uh,
0: War wizard.
1: Yeah, so he he puts the the scout up, not realizing that, well, you know, he's being stalked by a whole handful of these demon men. Uh, And the demon men catch up in the night, torch the cottage, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) <laughs> the wizard is furious, uh, but he begs one last favor after the, the wizard gets them, you know, he disguises them so that uh, they appear to be dead. Well, most of the supplies are destroyed. Uh, the demon men have split and wandered off, thinking they've done their job. And he gets the wizard to do him one last favor, like, please, I got to make it back to my lines. I, I got to make it back to my people. There's no way that I can, I can make it without help, because these demon men are stronger than any ordinary human. I I can't fight them, but you could help me with something, right? And the wizard grudgingly agrees and cobbles together a handful of leftover ingredients and very carefully places a series of enchantments on the sword. But, (laughs) after having his home trashed and digging around for uh, leftovers, there's one wrong ingredient, mm-hmm. uh, and that's all it took. And he winds up kind of obligated to take one hundred lives, more or less, with the sword. It will, once he draws it, it will not be sheathed until it kills, uh, and it will actually kind of bite like a dancing weapon in your hand. You know, it'll it'll seek advantage and strike at the best moment. Uh, you know, makes him a far more dangerous fighter than people would think. Uh, and further, it won't let him die, uh, as long as he's in possession of it, you know, he, and he can't get rid of it. It'll always come back.
0: Sounds like a win-win to me.
1: Yeah. Uh, the only downside is it's like a spiraling clock. Uh, 100 lives when he has defeated 100 warriors, uh, which the sword defines kind of arbitrarily, like somebody in front of him and armed uh, qualifies. And when it gets down to zero, it'll turn on him and kill him. But until then, he's not permitted to actually die. His heart won't stop beating. His consciousness will not leave his body. Uh, he could heal up from anything minor given enough time because the sword won't let him pass. But the bad news is, you know, what happens if like you don't fulfill these, these obligations? I mean, if you've got, Sixty lives left on the clock, and you just keep aging. You're too old to fight anybody anymore. Uh, you could be a withered husk in a chair for hundreds of years, with your consciousness still st- trapped in a body that will not die. So yeah, you know he he winds up with quite a problem, and I'm not going to spoil the endings. But uh, that was a creative nuisance situation
0: where yeah, I not to. Yeah, I think we had actually talked about this earlier in, uh, I think it was the second Appendix and we did. Um,
1: or was it the Artifacts, Intelligent Swords thing? Uh, or Unique Magical Yeah. Swords? Yeah, okay, yeah. I I we did reference... Yeah, you did reference this before.
0: So, yeah, but it's good that you bring it up then because this is the the perfect format to delve in. Now, the other book there you mentioned, uh, we talked a little bit about the details. Why don't you share that with some of our listeners?
1: Spell of the Black Dagger. Yeah,
0: I like that one. That one, now I read The Misenchanted Sword. You actually handed that off to me a number of years ago.
1: Yeah. uh, That uh, was
0: a good one. Now, I did not read The Spell of the Black Dagger.
1: Yeah, a very similar trope, uh, true to... Lawrence Watt Evans form, uh, a young thief listens in on a secretive wizard's lesson where the apprentice wizard is learning how to make an athame uh, and bind a knife to be their working tool for the rest of their life. Uh, Well, you know, in spite of doing the best they could to memorize how to make one, they got one thing wrong somewhere in the mix. But the spell still worked. It just created an unusual relationship between the blade and the person. And it winds up being more like a life-draining tool that uh, uh, whatever is slain with the knife, some of the attributes of the slain, plus their life force, their vital energy, um, goes to the wielder. And so she winds up slowly but surely realizing that this knife, whenever anything is injured or killed by it, she gets stronger. Uh, and it leads her down a really dark path. Uh, if she,
0: Zero killers start off yeah, like that. exactly. It starts
1: off, yeah. but, you know, along the way, she realizes that uh, a dog can result in her having an incredible sense of smell. Uh, you know, mm. and other animals, you know, incredibly keen hearing and super sharp eyes. Uh, nothing like, well, if, if, you can't grow wings by killing a bird. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's out. Flight right out. uh But she winds up being terribly powerful and furious about all of the injustices in their society. And she winds up leading a coup and taking over the palace and uh, letting all the poor people encamp there from her neighborhood. Uh, And being a gracious queen, except that she's really just a very temperamental young person who doesn't know how to do any of this. Doesn't know how any of these things work. Doesn't know how to get stuff done. Everybody's terrified of her. Uh, all that power winds up uh, being nothing but a terrible burden uh, not to mention the attempts to defeat her uh, somebody goes with the nuclear option uh, <laughs> oh wow uh, the you know, like a, the creeping doom you know just a kind of liquid death that expands outwards and slowly destroys everything uh, in an attempt to get one drop onto her and then seal the area uh, of course, uh, it doesn't go out like they planned. It creates quite the enormous crisis. No point in spoiling all of the fascinating ending, but the thing is, once again, magic gone horribly awry with unpredictable consequences and some really morally gray characters alongside some very admirable characters. Mm-hmm. People, uh, there tend to the protagonists in Lawrence Watt Evans' tend to be ordinary people thrust into extraordinary circumstances, Mm -hmm. uh, which has always appealed to me enormously. So, let's try Yeah, well, I'd like to make
0: a sidebar about that. Now, turning it around to gaming topics on that, I've noticed that the AD&D magic system often goes with the rote and ritual, almost the uh, bell, blade, and tome. Bell, book, candle. Oh, (laughs) bell, book, candle, bell, blade, and tome for me, but, you know... um, No, I'm kidding. That's the exorcism tools. Yes, but, you know, there are tools, the rule of three, verbal, somatic, material components. You know, you have to have your just gestures and the words right, and you have to have the proper materials and ingredients. And if you don't, then the spell doesn't work. Now, that works and lends itself. We've talked a lot about fancy and magic in the Dungeons and Dragons system, but we've also talked a little bit about the idea of where these come from, from certain types of classical mythology as well as even biblical references yeah, sticks to snakes anyone part water okay yeah not that that would be completely bu- biblical but oh, you no, know, no but uh, a good sunday school lesson you know Hey, I just come up with a brand new campaign idea for how to use Bart water. Yeah, okay.
1: Well, and the, the concept of a glamour that changes your appearance, I mean, it's right out of Merlin and King Arthur. Yeah, and, and then
0: you go to the more They will classical. think
1: that you are so-and-so, and you will pass right through their ranks. That—that
0: That is literal... Hallucinary terrain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Another Arthurian one. Yeah, but there's so many classical elements in there. But the real key here is that uh, in these books as well... What if you don't have the right material components? Something can go awry. These, you know, the rules don't really cover that because magic is kind of formulaic, almost a scientific formula. As long as you obey the necessary requirements and follow the rules, everything will be okay. But these books offer in, like you said, little slip-ups that may have later consequences. And also, magic um, from the medieval ages was looked at as you did something or nothing, and got something out of it, like the magic beans, you know. Magic wasn't just a formula. It was a way of experiencing the world.
1: Yeah, uh, and also, in many cases, unpredictable.
0: Yeah, and it's very
1: fickle. <laughs> oh, no, uh, it can be a cruel mistress. No, that that's a thing that uh, those books in particular really uh, hit on for me.
0: Yeah, so if to turn around, uh, some other appendix and stuff from the 80s, uh, Mercedes Lackey.
1: Oh.
0: Yeah, there was an author. She was just about everywhere. Yeah,
1: if if you were, uh, you know, mid to late 80s uh, and mid to late 90s, uh, grew from relative obscurity to enormous impact. Uh, you know, just filling whole, like, an inch, two or three shelves necessary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just to fit all of the editions, not... Uh, not with mass quantities of each book, but for a bookstore to have you know, at least one or two of everything that had been published by her, it took up a lot of space.
0: Yeah. And also, uh, this was where you were talking about the, where gaming was starting to influence literature. Now we had had TSR putting out, uh, the Dragonlance series and some of the forgotten realm novels. And, uh, at maybe some point we'll cover those. Uh, I know people have a lot of mixed feelings about those. But nonetheless, um, the idea of having not just a world created like Ursi, Hyboria, or Middle Earth. But but, a shared world. Yeah, of different authors writing in the same area. Almost like campaigns running in the same campaign world.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this, you know, I'm going to say this was a phenom that kicked off, it was more visible in the 80s than it was in the 70s. Uh, Gaming had entrenched itself uh, in the 1970s. By the time the 80s rolled out, uh, gaming was pretty well established, and there were a certain... At least with the first
0: wave people. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There was a certain type of book that would come out as a result of this, and one of them was uh, Robert Asprin's uh, collections of other authors mm-hmm. the writing world. in the Thieves' World, uh, Tales from the Vulgar Unicorn, yep. and other collections. So there were multiple collections of, in Thieves' World, and it was just a author's collaboration where all of them wrote in the same established universe, much like a great many different players playing in the same campaign world. Uh,
0: likewise, uh, right, and this has its roots going all the way back to uh, the Cthulhu Mythos, where H. P. Lovecraft, August Derleth, Robert Bloke, um, Clark Ashton Smith, and uh, Robert E. Howard all penned Cthulhu Mythos or borrowed each other's gods to include, you know, the Elder Gods and the Outer Gods. Do you know the difference? No, they're all they drive you nuts. Yeah, Just, the
1: idea of a shared universe was not new. Uh, important to denote that is that that had actually been accomplished decades before. Uh, but what was unique was series of books by different authors bound in a single volume, edited and like readily available on bookshelves. That, that had not really happened so much. Uh, you could get science fiction samplers periodically. Yeah, uh, but there was not a lot of. I don't think there was a very strong investment in getting those the attention. Uh, whereas with Thebes World or uh, C.J. Sherry's Merovingian Nights, Merovingian Nights, yes, um, those. Got they got FaceTime on the shelves at the bookstores yeah. and people noticed them.
0: Yeah, I read quite a few of them. So uh.
1: those were very enjoyable reads. So, I mean, big kudos to CJ Sherry uh, and to Robert Aspirin uh, for just terrific uh, editing and bringing a world to life and then having all of the other authors they enjoyed working with and respected. uh get on board and make it a part of it. Now, and what you would mentioned before is exactly what I think is interesting about it, is that uh, as gaming and the concept of the shared universe uh, and campaign world came into the forefront of uh, gamer culture, just about the same time, authors started delivering fantasy fare that was... In a very similar vein.
0: Yeah, and then there was... Uh,
1: art, imitating life, imitating art.
0: Huh. <laughs> um, there's a lot of good uh, stuff that came out of there. Uh, Hell Hammers, Hell's Hammers, that was a good one. Uh, science fiction anthology that uh, started off as just a series, but then other people began to write in that shared universe colloquially. Correct. You know, they can collaborated and made uh, different ones. And that was about a uh, mercenary unit of grab tank uh, jocks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Hammer Slammers.
1: That's. Oh, that was it. Hammer Slammers. I remember that. Yeah, they
0: became a shared world anthology after a period of time, just like the Honor Harrington and other ones. And there's really good science fiction out there. And We talk a lot about fantasy, but hell, let's talk about oh, we, we talk no. about Traveler with uh, glowing praise. And yes, if you don't die during character generation, well, okay, yes, we're well past <laughs> well, then
1: that. you're Then you're still playing the very first iteration of Traveler.
0: Yeah, they well past that. So, you know, the I, jokes aside.
1: I was grateful that they re-released a complete uh reissue of the yeah original i, I think traveler. we need to it's uh, nice to do that Thank i
0: you. think we're going to take some of the money off of uh, the advertisements we honor here and uh put that towards a getting a box that box set, a traveler starter set but uh, we digress um anyway talking about books yeah so anthologies became quite popular just not in fantasy but in science fiction as well just off you know a, a person who started a series of novels that seem to maybe take place in a certain area, unlike E.E. E. Doc Smith's or uh, Asimov's uh, uh, Foundation, You yeah, have the Lensman or the Foundation series. I think they would have, in the time, found a way to collaborate as well with other people. Now, of course, one of the things we'd are, if we're going to just mention, uh, science fiction, I'm just going to touch on this. Yes, I know uh, I've had a couple people ask me about Dune, if we're going to talk about that at certain points of time. Well, we do focus a lot on Dungeons & Dragons, but... I also think that uh, at a certain point we're going to do a Warhammer 40,000 talk and uh, we're going to talk about Dune during that. So Now, I do want to go back to Mercedes Lackey for a moment because okay. there's a specific... Hey, we're bringing point. you back to Earth. Sorry, folks. Yeah. I,
1: there's a specific part of Mercedes Lackey's work that I, I really want to mention because it's a facet of fantasy literature culture uh, that we overlook from time to time. Um uh, In her case, that era, uh, the early 1980s, there was no such thing really as young adult fiction, okay? Mm -hmm. There there was no section very carefully denoted for that. There was either a kid's section where it was really less complicated fare, uh, not very demanding to read, probably appropriate for elementary school kids, Uh, which is terrific. Okay, I'm not saying that it's a terrible thing that there's a kids section, Uh, but everything in the kids section, if you were an avid reader in that era, you very quickly burned through almost all of it, and it wasn't extremely challenging. It it was not... uh, And I was one of those weird kids who's like reading Le Morte uh, (laughs) d'Arthur, you know, at 10, and going like, this is way cooler than the books in the school library this is like the best thing ever
0: well heck I had our young readers version of uh, Moby Dick 20,000 leagues under the sea and Babel. yeah Bulls. I remember those uh. I mean yeah they were abridged but uh, you know I could grasp them.
1: Yeah, all right. I, I do remember the early editions of like the Three Musketeers and the Man in the Iron Mask. Those were favorites. Twenty Thousand Leagues Beneath the Sea, yep. Around the World in Eighty Days, uh, Jules Verne. Yeah, but those you're right. The,
0: stuff. The, but you burn through those young readers, and we don't give enough credit towards it. Lord uh, Lloyd Alexander, who does uh, the Black Cauldron and the Horn uh, King and yes. Tar and the Wanderer. You know, those are also good young reader stuff that were marketed directly to young adults, but yet we're still pretty heady. I mean, you learned about Arwen, Lord of the Dead.
1: I'm glad that things have evolved since then, and there is a nice middle ground where young adult fiction uh, is probably easier to assess. Now, I'm going to say with regard to Mercedes Lackey, uh, at that time, had there been a young adult fiction section, hers probably would have been in it. Uh, mm-hmm. because it was very approachable uh it was strong on empathy and empathizing with characters yeah uh, very you know,
0: character driven
1: it was a very character driven you story. really
0: got to know and especially with CJ uh Sharon uh Sharon excuse me um you really got empathy of the characters
1: yeah they you developed a rapport Her elf with Stones them. that
0: yeah. one was really uh, uh struck me uh, deeply early on. It was like, wow, this is really a really complex character for an elf. That uh, that aspect
1: is probably another one of my favorite things, is that a, a character that you can readily identify with, um, and as... <clears throat> I, I am going to say that moving apart from identifying with the character is the other appealing factor of Mercedes Lackey was there were certain things in which she was extremely personally experienced with, like, uh, you know, Mm falconry, horseback riding, things like that. So the terminology, the uh, language used to describe those things was all on point, which I found really interesting because if if you were a kid who rode horses, uh, you knew right away that this was somebody else who had ridden a horse Uh, because you can very quickly tell the difference between uh, an author who has never in their life seen or ridden or interacted with a horse uh, and just referenced them uh, and the difference that is so palpable when you're dealing with an author who has, in fact, ridden a great deal and is very comfortable with all of the terminology. Uh, So there was that, too. There was a lot of factual detail and there were even a few moments where I, I honestly paused for a moment and I thought, okay, you know, I mean, I get that there's people that don't know this stuff, but this might actually be a little more background than I wanted. I'm I'm not saying that as a complaint. There's still great novels. Uh, Magic's Pawn, Magic's Promise, Magic's Price, uh, Arrows of the Queen. Uh um, And, oh, I believe it was the Mage War series that uh, came later, which... Okay.
0: uh, Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one, but yeah. the uh, First couple uh, you rattled through uh, really uh, ignited old... uh, Extinct brain cells, long dormant.
1: Yeah, uh, well, and the topic of ancient magic used in warfare having long-standing lingering results mm-hmm. uh, that were literally damaging to the world uh, <laughs> so bad that uh, in one novel there was you know, only a person skilled in both magic uh, and... Uh, a solid understanding of uh, ancient magics, which was very hard to find. There were very few people with it uh, left, and only a person with those abilities and that knowledge would have been able to make sense of what was going on. And that they realized that there was an enormous spell in a capital city of a small border country uh, with no explanation, it's just an enormous and powerful spell that had been set up long ago with no explanation for it, working through an entire family. And the gist of it was that, although nobody had known it for generations, uh, and every member of the family was eventually brought into what their responsibility was, yeah, they were attuned to a pillar of stone down in the basement, uh, and they were obligated to wear rings. Uh, That, you know, as members of this family's blood relatives, the whole point was not sinister. You know, while it first seemed like it was going in an awful direction, it turned out that even though most of them didn't even understand what they were doing anymore, uh, the lineage of that family had for hundreds and hundreds of years been guarding this area and basically helping to power a spell that was healing a hole in the planet that had been blown there by magic. And it was essentially stitched together with like, you know, if you could imagine magic thread and a magic needle, you know, that basically mages of the past had stitched together this hole in the planet and the place is effectively sitting on like an, what would be an open volcano. Uh, And that spell was slowly patching it shut. Mm. Uh, And if anything drained all the magic out of this region, any huge use of magic, it would trigger an instantaneous eruption. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, the yeah. area is magic-rich and untapped, and people who don't understand why you shouldn't exhaust the magic here very quickly wanted to get their paws on all that delicious magic energy to fuel my spells, not understanding... Uh, you You just don't understand why you shouldn't do this. So, that was the source of the conflict. But that was a fascinating...
0: Interesting yeah, that's novel. one of the things where the books, you know, they give you a different perspective on magic for gaming versus, you know, where gaming, you know, well, you just wish it would happen. Okay, well, wish is the ultimate expression of magic in as I think human entity can go, and that spell alone, you know, can change so much. But here you have a different aspect and outlook that it's not instantaneous, but it's going to happen anyway. But everybody has to invest a little bit of themselves to make it happen, and yet you have to still keep magic free and unbound in that area. So that's a really uh, interesting aspect out of a lot of these books where you look at magic as a literary contrivance, but yet as a game master, you're always stuck with trying to turn it in some way to make it a rule or make it gameable or make it a plot point. And so once you do make it a plot point in gaming, we like to stat things out. We like to know exactly what the parameters are, how it functions. You know, we like to know the like scientists, we view magic from a modern-day perspective as pure science. Yeah. How do I codify
1: this? How do I categorize this? How do I make it predictable? Uh, how can how can I make an adjudication without too much randomness intruding?
0: And not to get too far up on a tangent, I just think that's fascinating yeah. from an anthropological standpoint of how medieval people used to look at magic and how we view it magic through not just the lens of science, but also from gaming, which has lent itself to a type of science, if it's a little bit more artistic than science at times, because magic just works. You don't have to know how it works, it just does.
1: <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, seeing that, that this is all effectively based on superstitions from hundreds of years ago... Uh, it is entertainment to us. However, yeah. you know, once upon a time, this was viewed as like the lifeblood of existence. You know, Very like exactly. the are were hanging in the balance a thousand years ago. Like, if we don't get this right, the gods will be angry and we're doomed. Uh, so, obviously, we need to tie a man up, shove him in a bog uh, with his throat slit, you know, or uh, put him inside a wicker cage and light him on fire. You know, so the, the things that people took terribly seriously a long time ago uh it is odd that like now this is our pastime and our hobby the you know the the ins and outs of how does magic work well yeah, as well as
0: myths and legends what you can know. it
1: do and not do yeah it, but again literature gives us so many uh introductions to old concepts and things that are forgotten uh, and uh, kudos got to be given so speaking of things that are old and forgotten let's
0: yeah that's me um Not really old. We're old. Well, I am old, but I don't feel old. But anyway. No, uh, unfortunately, we are running low on our time and abusing your good patience and eardrums. But uh, we'll get back to coming back. I'd like to cover some more modern stuff at some point in time. Uh, Stuff I read, Mike. Not any uh, slight against it, because I'm right there with them in the old stuff, too. I mean, but uh, this was a nice slice of kind of what was in... The back shelf section, you know, kind of like in the passed over, not the main part of your science fiction libraries and fantasy libraries of those days.
1: Everyone knows Isaac Asimov. Everybody, you know, is, uh, well, all right, maybe not everybody. But uh, amongst science fiction and fantasy fans, you know, Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov and uh well, of course JRR Tolkien yep. and CS Lewis these are the big names that everybody knows it's just nice to give a nod and a better explanation to some of the people that they're not forgotten they they have fandoms there are people who are very fond of their work uh, but they don't get the attention that I think a lot of things do yeah
0: and you know if you you can find these at old book sales um yeah if you hit flea bay you'll probably get a pretty penny <laughs> But you'll also, if you look around and actually get some used bookstores, uh, these books are around and they're available for a pretty uh, decent price. So, and they're well worth your time. So, but with that, we're going to kind of wind it down here. Uh, We appreciate you listening in. And, of course, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, of course, you can direct them to us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is Ice Your Screaming and let us know there. As well as you can uh, get a hold of us on Twitter, where i'm at death hand gaming that's d e t h a n d and i am gaming match i yep and you can get all this on twitter and we'll probably answer you yeah we probably will i'm pretty sure yeah most likely all, all right. right but yes uh until the next time though may the, the dice, dice always roll in your, your favor. favor we're out see ya